There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. I must admit that I have been unbelievably obsessed with the submersible, which people are now giving a 0% chance of survival for the um, people on board, the crew on board. And, you know, I've shared with the audience before, you know, I I cannot think of a worse fate. Like I can only hope, and this is a terrible thing, but I've been thinking about this virtually nonstop, you know. Um, I've been doing my research and reading books and stuff, but it keeps coming up in my psyche, you know, this sort of... uh, need to stay prayerful about it. Like, I, I, we need a miracle, period. We, this would be a great miracle for right now, just like finding the, the four kids after 40 days in the Amazon. That miracle really, you know, it just made things not so bad for a little while. And so a miracle would be perfect right about now. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about the various things I'm reading nonstop about the possibilities of recovery and the possibilities of uh, what what actually happened. I mean, they don't know what happened. They still have no idea what happened, but they have now found debris. Um, there's a debris field that was found by an underwater robot. And... That's basically, you know, the end of the story. Um, At 3 o'clock, the Coast Guard will have a press conference. And um, you can only, this is my hope, okay? My hope is that whatever happened, happened virtually in a one moment. That the um, pressure, you see, I don't know enough about the science, but my prayer is that it it just imploded and they all uh, it died immediately. And they didn't have to go through, you know, anything horrendous. Um, because I think it became worse and worse for me the more I believed that they were in there waiting for the end. That to me. Um, was just an unbearable thought. So, you know, that's the news, the breaking news, is that they have uh, have found a debris field in the area they've been searching since the submersible vanished on Sunday with five people on board. And, you know, uh, they're evaluating the information, and I'm assuming by 3 o'clock they will have a report, they're having a a press conference. The Coast Guard said that the Canadian vessel Horizon Arctic deployed an ROV 
that reached the seafloor and began its search for the missing sub. The French vessel La Talante also deployed their ROV and um, they discovered this debris field. Now, uh, you know, I, I just thought, ha, what is an ROV? I didn't even know. Now all of a sudden I know all these things. It's a remotely operated vehicle. And this search and rescue mission, you can't send people down there easily. That's why they were in this submersible, this little submarine. And so this is almost like robotic surgery, what they're doing. They send in something that's kind of like a drone, I guess, and they are able to get a visual on an area where they cannot descend to. And apparently that is exactly what they uh, have done and that they have now made the announcement that a debris field has been undercovered by this robot and they will make a statement at three o'clock. Um, and so I wish I could say that now I can sort of put the story aside, but I really, I'm gonna need to know everything um, just to make peace with this. And, you know, maybe I needed something besides, you know, Congress and its, you know, horrendous behavior yesterday with the, you know, the censure of Adam Schiff, who acted like he, you know, he called it a badge of honor. You know, I have a Congress right now, and I don't care what side of the aisle you're looking at, where these people have absolutely no dignity. This is a, a, a grotesque group of people. You had two of the, you know, uh, MAGA Republicans, both of whom I like, you know, calling each other the B word on the floor. And, you know, look, I, I'm a talk show host and I say some pretty outrageous things. And my job is to make people thoughtful and even a little ticked off, right? But when I look at what, you know, we've become on Congress, I mean, we make Parliament look dignified now and in parliament they yell and scream at each other and in the japanese parliament you know they they like punch each other in the face is that where we are going you know is that what it's going to look like when c-span is inside a hearing you know with people shouting and and saying the ugliest things that they can possibly think of about each other i mean that is not that is not that's not what i ever uh, envisioned you know I used to um, I used to have a, an opportunity to visit Congress um, I wasn't a, a a I didn't work as a page or anything like that but I had entree through a particular congressman to go and sit in on you know congressional hearings and uh, an occasional um, debate right and you know famously I was at the one where uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was still in Congress at the time, it was before he became a senator, and he debated that, you know, this welfare bill that they were putting forward would be the end of the family. And he was right, you know, and, he was, and people were angry with him. But, you know, I, I've had opportunities to see Congress in action. And let me tell you something, as heated as that debate was, it was totally dignified, you know. I can't imagine now going and looking in the uh, the chamber, the Senate chamber, and seeing Fetterman in a hoodie and shorts. Like, you know, that's just inconceivable to me. You know, I have enough trouble handling the fact that, you know, people, you know, go to sh 
church now in shorts and flip-flops. You know, it's just not the way I, I grew up. And, and I understand that, you know, time marches on and I'm old-fashioned about certain things, but you know what? Dignity is something that I think has value in a civilization. And if we don't have any, even in the chambers, in the House and the Senate, then we're pretty much, you know, like every other, you know, nation. We, we, we no longer sit at the top of the heap. You know, uh, most of these other countries don't care what we think anymore. And they're not looking to us to lead them in particular world situations anymore. You know, that, that part of history, that part that I grew up under, is over. And I, I just, you know, who do I blame? I have to blame my generation. I have to blame, you know, anything after the greatest generation, which just basically turned itself into the most selfish, non-educated uh, about what a government like ours was supposed to look like long-term. It's just, uh, it's, a, it's virtually irrelevant. And, and I was saddened by that. You know, add that into my obsessive worrying about this submersible. It's been a, um, you know, sometimes you read words in books and you never know if you're ever going to be able to use them. But I, I'm going to use one of those words that I've been reading in books my whole life and don't think I've ever had the opportunity to use before. I find myself morose. And that's not a condition that you usually find me in. I'm either angry or happy. There's like, I don't have a lot of gray. It's black or white with me. And I'm either mad or I'm frustrated, but I have never really spent much time in this place that I'm going to call morose. You know, I just, I'm so demoralized by what I see going on that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, how, how I get past this. I know I will, you know, I'll be angry again or I'll be happy again. But right now, that little word that I've read for years and for everything from cl the classics to modern day novels, I'm, I'm in like in a morose mood and you don't, you're not going to like me in that mood. So I better rouse myself out of it and I will. You know, and I'll look at the situations that are going on right now. D listen to this story. I mean, if you want to know why I, I sit here and, and have to like s sometimes say to myself, is this real? Is this a real story? Or is this like, you know, The Onion or some satirical website? A meteorologist in Iowa by the name of Chris Gloninger got an email notific notification last June. It read, getting sick and tired of your liberal conspiracy on the weather. What's your address? Another asked him a few days later. We conservative Iowans would like to give you an Iowan welcome you'll never forget. When did we start threatening meteorologists? Like, that one went so contrary to anything I've known. Now, believe me, I think you can say, I get emails all the time. And let me make this perfectly clear to those of you who send them. 
I am not responsible for the news that airs at the top of the hour, right? That is the station that makes that determination. And when we had reporters doing news breaks at the bottom of the hour, I was not responsible for what they said either. You know, I'm responsible for the content of my show and everything around me is the direct result of decisions made way above over my head, all right? So for this, you know, uh, meteorologist to be getting threats, you know, it's one thing for someone like me to get the occasional threat, and trust me, I used to get plenty of them. You know, not so much anymore, but... I'm in the business of poking people in the chest and, and, and kind of if, if they don't agree with my opinions, they get mad, you know. So I, I'm in that business. But a meteorologist? I mean, what could he possibly have said? He said, you know, that, that the ice cap is melting? Okay. But people were threatening him online. And, and that really just, and, and call themselves conservatives. That's not what we do. You know, we try to win an argument. We don't say, you're worthless, we're going to greet you, we're going to, you know, uh, ugh. Again, no dignity. You know, look, the meteorologists that I watch, the local ones here in Miami and Broward County, I don't agree with, you know, their, their liberal leaning. But I basically watch that report. Is like a storm coming? Is it going to be raining? You know, how hot is it going to get? I don't care what they say about climate change. My husband was watching a show the other day. I walked into the room and he's watching a show. I, I'm one of the, he likes to watch those educational things. And this one was on the ice cap or the melting of the ice cap or something like that. And my impulse, the minute I walked into the room was say, turn that off. You know, that's, you know, BS or whatever. But I said, you know, let me sit down and watch this. You know, what are these people thinking? You know, what are they so afraid of? You know, and so I started watching it. I think it was on the History Channel or the National Geographic, one of those informative stations. And I'm watching it and I'm going, you know, uh, I've been hearing this for my whole life, that the ice cap is melting and that there's global warming and then there was, you know, freezing temperatures. I mean, I've been hearing this stuff all my life. And I'm not... In, you know, I'm not going to threaten the makers of this documentary because I don't believe what they believe, right? I don't know. I guess, I guess it's getting to me. Like it got to this meteorologist. You know, he's leaving. <laughs> he, he, he altered his entire career. He's leaving his career in TV news because he says he has PTSD from these threats. Now, believe me, I... Uh, could could say I have PTSD because of things that have happened over the 33 years that I've been doing talk radio. Trust me, I could I could definitely uh, claim PTSD, but I, you know it seems rather insignificant when I think about soldiers who were in the you know the jungles of Vietnam or in the battlefields in Afghanistan. That's the PTSD that we should be talking about, not a meteorologist who doesn't like getting ugly emails. Although again. Why would you send an ugly email to a meteorologist? I mean, I just, I can't, I can't wrap my mind around it. And it was, you know, in Iowa. <laughs> okay. You know, anyway, um, don't forget to download the app, the 850 WFTL app. That way you could hear my No Restraint podcast, all the other great podcasts that we have um, on that app or on the website. You can go to 850WFTL.com. 
I also want to tell you that we have a contest that you could be participating in, and you could win a $50 gift card from the Bole Fresh Bold Kitchen to enjoy Summer Sip and Sizzle. It's their first limited-time pairing featuring the Summer Barbecue Bowl and a Strawberry Dragon Fruit Fresca. Man, I want that right now. You can enter on our app or at 850WFDL.com. See, I can't win it because I work here, but you can. And you can always get your Storm Central updates as hurricanes will be coming. All right, let me take a break. And Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'll be back. So the Supreme Court decisions are coming out fast and furious. And one thing I don't like to do is to uh, say much until I have read the opinion and at least if there's a you know, a couple of dissents, at least if I read the major one, um, I feel like I can actually discuss it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just coming down too fast. The one that I did read was the, uh, they ruled against the Navajo Nation, uh, which claimed that the federal government didn't assert that the tribe's desperate need for water access. And the justices divided 5-4 and said a lawsuit against the federal government must be thrown out. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh wrote the majority opinion. He said that an 1868 treaty with the Navajo Nation did not require the U.S. government to take active steps to secure water access, and it is not the judiciary's role to rewrite and update this 155-year-old treaty. Uh, Justice Gorsuch, joined the three liberal justices in dissent. The, he said the tribe was merely asking the federal government to identify its water's rights and was not seeking dramatic further steps. As tribal members have to do throughout their difficult history, they must fight again for themselves to secure their homeland. And Gorsuch added that the tribe can still intervene in ongoing water rights litigation. Now, that may not seem like a very big deal to people, but this is all going to set precedent. And in a country that is as divided as we are, this is going to end up being an unfavorable ruling, as is the other one that I'm watching that just came down. The, the fourth and final opinion of the day is Jones versus Hendricks, and it was a 6-3 opinion with the usual lineup. Um, and, of course, I'm looking at Twitter, so I haven't read the opinion yet. I just pulled it up, and I will read it but I don't have time to read it during this show. Um, I will tell you this, Justice Thomas wrote the opinion, so I will read it with great enthusiasm because I love the way he writes. And the dissent was, there was a solo dissent by Katanji Jackson Brown and uh, Sotomayor and Kagan wrote what is very unusual, a joint dissent. And of course, the um, the people on Twitter that I follow that follow the Supreme Court are all left wing, <laughs> so I 
So they're already saying, oh, this is a truly awful outcome for people who are incarcerated for conduct that Congress did not actually criminalize. It condemns many of them to die behind bars. Very dramatic, very dramatic. Like, first of all, the um, incarcerated individual term is being challenged. And even Justice Jackson in the dissent uses that that you know says that the court holds that an incarcerated individual who has already filed one post-convention petition cannot file another one to assert a previously unavailable claim of statutory innocence. I'm gonna have to read this. I can't give you my opinion, but um, I'm guessing that it's probably a, a, a good idea to stop the insanity that goes on with these prisoners who have been given lengthy sentences or even the death penalty and just appeal and appeal and appeal into you know perpetuity and we continue to you know have to pay the expenses that are involved in these appeals and then to go all the way to the supreme court you know this is uh, it's not that easy unless you're Fane Lozman to get to the supreme court anyway so I'll read them, and on Monday I'll have an opinion about all of them. And I'll be talking with Congressman Waltz on Monday as well because he wrote a, 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 an incredible editorial about how the military is totally unprepared in, in a state of unreadiness, and a lot of it has to do with the uh, Biden administrations and the Department of Defense, which I've been watching. This ridiculous assertion that they have to be like, you know, uh, carbon emissions free in the military. Like, I really am not interested in sending electric vehicles to war zones. I want the hardest hitting, worst, best, whatever. And it will definitely probably emit a lot of carbon, you know. So I, I'm going to be talking with Tim about that on Sunday. I am still very concerned about all of the uh, immigration news and these proposals in the appropriations budget, which I think are insane. I think that, you know, we have lost any sense of sovereignty. We have these porous borders, and it's not just the southern border anymore. You know, now the numbers coming across the northern border are crazy. Coming into the ports are crazy. Coming into the actual port of entry on the southern border. These numbers are insane. And, you know, this is just making things untenable and very little, uh, you know, discussions taking place even in talk radio. So I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, I'm going to have Dr. Steve Camerata from the Center for Immigration Studies because there's another aspect that they don't want to cover in the main street media and it is you know it's our public schools in florida so i'm going to talk to dr camarada about what the new study shows and how this unbridled immigration legal and illegal by the way have affected public school education if you heard my thought of the day today or you hear it at six o'clock you couldn't have heard it yet or you listen to it later on your app you know i talk about it's disgraceful how our scores have dropped. They're in the toilet in America. I knew this was going to happen with the COVID shutdowns and kids not being able to go to school, but we're two years out of that and it's not getting better. So we need to talk about the effect of immigrant households on our public school students. I'll be back after this break. All right, we're trying to get Dr. Steve Camerata on the line, but he is, some, my producer tells me he's like in the middle of something. 
So we'll see. If we get him, we get him. If not, we'll uh, get him to come on the show tomorrow or some other time. Uh, because it's, a, it's, a, it's an important report. There are 11 million public, students, public school students from immigrant-headed households, which accounts for nearly one out of four students in public schools. Back in 1990, that's 23%. Back in 1990, it was 11%. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then, good. Um, so my guest is my, my good friend and someone who I have tremendous respect for. He's very apolitical, but boy, he knows his numbers. Dr. Stephen Camerata from the Center for Immigration Studies. This report about public schools in Florida has my hair on fire, Steve. Are, are you there? Hello. Hi. Yeah, no, I can yeah. hear you, Joyce. Sorry, okay. like faded out. Oh, okay. Well, I said this report on public schools in Florida has my hair on fire. What, what, is, what is going on here? Right, so what we were looking at is just the massive growth of immigration and its impact on public schools. A lot of times we talk about these questions abstractly, but one of the places where immigration has its most profound and important impact is on public services including public schools. So what we've seen, um, so nationally, uh, immigrants were something like 10% of kids in public schools were from immigrant families, say, back in 1990. But today, it's almost a fourth. So, and in states like Florida, well, the growth has been even more profound. But what we did here is we looked at it at the local level and we mapped it. So then you've got all kinds of areas in a state like Florida, like Hialeah, where, you know, 80% plus of the kids um, come from immigrant backgrounds. So the impact nationally is big, but the impact on local communities in a place like Florida uh, is just truly enormous, and it raises all kinds of profound questions about, um, you know, can we, uh, you know, is the level of immigration so high, particularly at the local level, that it can overwhelm the assimilation process? Oh, there, there's no question in my mind. And, you know, this morning I did a whole piece on how math and reading scores among America's 13-year-olds fell to their lowest levels in decades. And look, this is not me um, slamming immigration, which I can do very well, but this is me saying when you bring in children who do not speak the language, there's no way you can get an accurate test score as to what the, the native kids are, are doing in school. Not that I don't believe COVID affected every child who was going to school, but you know, the, how is this ignored? You're talking about pockets in Florida, because I read the study, where there's 31% of the student body is from an immigrant-run household. Right, right. That's the, that's the number nationally, I mean, uh, for the state as a whole. And of course, as you point out, in many areas of Florida, it's just, it's incredible. If you, mm -hmm. if your listeners want to go, they can go look at the map and click on each of these areas. We, we drill down using these public use micro areas from the Census Bureau, and you find lots of places in Florida where more than half of the kids are from immigrant backgrounds. More than half of the kids speak a foreign language at home. So the impact there is, is truly enormous. Yeah, and and I guess for you know for the average parent or grandparent at this point, I'm the grandparent. Um, we look at how compromised the schools have been anyway prior to this flooding in of as many people as uh, the this particular administration can tolerate, and 
um, we look at the diminishing scores. We see how the kids are doing across the board. And, you know, we don't want this to go on much longer. Uh, ESOL was supposed to be sort of a, a small program that was entered into schools. It's now like the main thing in every school, English for speakers of other languages. Uh, that's, that's correct. And I think that that also what happens is that uh, a much larger fraction of immigrant kids come from low-income backgrounds, and immigrants have, you know, on average lower income. So what that means is that in general, in areas they settle, you have both the challenge associated with educating kids from a foreign background, and, and it's particularly language, and at the same time, you get this big um, – you get, you get this big increase in enrollment without a corresponding increase in taxes because the immigrants have significantly higher poverty rates, lower average income. So not only do you have somewhat higher cost per student and big increases in enrollment, but then you don't get a corresponding increase in taxes. doesn't mean immigrants don't pay any taxes. It just means that um, in this case, you know, there's no way that, that these areas are going to get an influx of taxes that roughly con- – uh, that that, you know, that aligns with the, um, the increase in costs that they have. So, yeah. so that is one of the big challenges. And that's aside from questions of assimilation. And as you say, I mean, COVID wrecked the American education system. Predictably, right. everyone said it was going to happen, and now we're seeing it in the test scores. And um, immigration certainly increases the challenges. Now, one thing about these data is that it's only through 2021. It does not reflect the Biden border surge. Remember, when mm. President Biden took office, there were about 45 million immigrants in the United States. Probably by now, based on the monthly data, we don't have a complete picture, but that number is likely 49 million. So wow. in just two years and a few months, it's grown by 4 million. And that still takes into account normal mortality, you know, the people who die every year, the people who go home. So we are seeing growth in the immigrant population. At least half of that is from new illegal immigration that's really unprecedented and one of the areas where it's going to impact the most is our schools which are already struggling both right. with trying to deal with the influx that's already occurred and just and the added problems created by covid right so we have the fiscal challenge that uh you know gets ignored as you said it's never going to line up if you I, I looked at the numbers and i did the you know looked at it on a micro level 87% of the children in North Dade, meaning Hialeah, that area, come from in immigrant households where English is a second language. That's an, it's almost unbelievable to me. Um, how can you possibly assimilate if everybody is not, right. you know, right. not, no, that, not native? Point, Joyce. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, I mean, the way, one of the ways assimilation works is that the kids from, uh, you know, U.S. born parents kind of predominate and the acculturation is kind of a natural process because the immigrants make up a modest share of the population. But that's not what we're seeing. Um, and it does raise important questions about the uh, the average immigrant in, in Florida and um, the average immigrant nationally, it's, it's similar numbers, lives in an area that is at least 40 percent uh, also mm. foreign language speakers. So they most, uh, you know, and this has, you know, again, enormous implications for their ability just to gain the foreign language. One language usually predominates in an area as well, though that's not always true. There are 
hundreds of these local areas where 10 or more languages are spoken in the schools, which means that they have to take translators, the teachers have to be trained, and so forth. So that creates another set of challenges, though it's normally one big language, usually Spanish, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, no, you know, fair questions. And I guess the biggest issue for me is when people say, look, we need to take in more refugees, we need to take in more asylees, or gosh, we need more workers. It's always thought about as in isolation, either the, the, the interests of the person who wants to come or the interests of a particular business predominates. But the broad national interest, including the impact on public schools, just isn't thought of. I mean, if you say you want to bring in more people or allow more people in, or what the, uh, what the uh, Biden administration is just doing is effectively releasing more people into the country. We could discuss the legality of that, but we'll put that aside. But without any consideration to the broad impact on American society, sure, there's an employer who wants it. Sure, the individual immigrant wants it. And those things matter, and we should think about that. But the impact on public services and schools and just our ability to absorb and assimilate and integrate, no one ever thinks about that. It just doesn't come up. And remember, we're at the record. In 1890 and 1910, we were somewhat under 15% of the U.S. Pop- total U.S. population were foreign-born. We are at that level now or maybe slightly above it. We'll know in a few months. But the point is that we're headed into uncharted territory when it comes to the immigrant share of the U.S. population. Never been here before, and it's hardly ever discussed. No, and and you're right. And the cost down the line of an uneducated, uh, you know, young population, which will come into its own, and the expectation is that they'll go to work. But what kind of work are we talking about? You know, the, the whole world is moving into moving out of service industries and out of manual labor and into more robotic things. And we have this enormous population now, also U.S. natives who are undereducated. This is a, a formula for disaster. Yeah, no, I mean, the challenge is here. Obviously, many immigrants come to the United States highly educated, and in general, their kids graduate college and do pretty well. But for the other half of immigrants where that's not true, um, and now particularly with this illegal influx, um, you know, it, it's just very challenging. And uh, it put a different way, if you already have a large, low-income population and you're struggling to improve skills and education, does it make sense to bring in a whole lot more people who have roughly that same profile? Yeah. And the way they do it is what's so, you know, disturbing to me. Now, you know, that they're saying that they need to bring in these laborers and they're not going to count the ones who have already been here and invited back. Instead, they're going to bring in another crop. And it's just, you know, they just make up these crazy uh, rules. And then we're stuck as the parents and grandparents watching the schools get overcrowded, watching uh, in some instances, taxes uh, f- up because you, your property taxes what pays for this. And uh, it's just, it's such a formula for disaster. It makes me crazy that there's so few of us who are willing to discuss it. But thank goodness for the Center for Immigration Studies and for you, Dr. Camarad. I always appreciate you making sense of those numbers for us. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Always. You're always welcome. And, and as you guys need to know this stuff because when you go out and have discussions about immigration and people look at you and say, what are you, a bigot? You know, no. But when I, was, when I went to elementary school, I had immigrant parents. 
you know, who came here, even though Puerto Rico is part of America, came here not speaking English. Her mother didn't speak English. And when I went to school, the whole point was that I would bring the culture and the language home with me. And that doesn't happen now. You know, you've got populations that live in, in literally in what I call um, ethnic ghettos, you know, where 87, think about this, because if, if you don't understand what we're talking about, 87% of the kids going to public school in Hialeah, 87% come from immigrant families where English is not the first language. How is that, how is that possible? How is that not ringing an alarm bell? You know, I got to see that 13-year-old students uh, at math scores, average math scores fell by nine points, reading by, by thir uh, it's just insane. But instead, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, uh, whether uh, Donald Trump should have had those papers in his, in his uh, you know, m at Mar-a-Lago. It, it's, it's insane. We're in an insane time. Let me take a break. I have one more segment left, and Dan Bongino will be on at 1 o'clock, Ben Shapiro at 4 o'clock. Dan Bongino said something very interesting. Well, he says something interesting every day, but he really sounded some big alarms yesterday about this whole uh, Department of Justice fiasco. But uh, you stay right where you are. I've got another segment to do. I laughed out loud when I read this. You know, the other day, Mark Zuckerberg, who all of a sudden has decided he's some kind of martial arts expert, you know, and although I've been reading articles that say, like, he gets very upset if anybody shows him in a losing match, but he's been practicing jujitsu and, I don't know, something else. But he challenged Elon Musk to a cage fight. Now, you know, you're talking about two high-profile tech billionaires who most of us think of as pretty nerdy, you know, you, you gotta be pretty nerdy to come up with the things that these guys have come up with and make billions of dollars doing it. So uh, Elon Musk didn't do, say anything for a couple of days and then this, I think this morning or maybe last night, last night, he said he'll do it. He said, uh, you know, I'll do it. And then Zuckerberg said, yeah, where? Send me location, I think, was uh, Zuckerberg's uh, response. Send me location. And Musk said, the Vegas octagon. Now, that is the octagon where they do all the competition. It's like a fenced-in area for the ultimate fighting championship bouts, right, in Las Vegas. So now, now try to picture this, and you know why I was laughing out loud. Uh, Elon Musk turns 52 this month. And he writes, he tweets out, I have this great move that I call the walrus, where I just lie on top of my opponent and do nothing. <laughs> uh, and then he put a bunch of pictures of walruses up. And he said, he also tweeted, I almost never work out except for picking up my kids and throwing them in the air. Meanwhile, 39-year-old Mr. Zuckerberg has already been training in mixed martial arts and has recently won jujitsu tournaments. Twitter did not provide a statement when contacted by the BBC for comment. The exchanges have gone viral with social media users debating who would win the bout. And of course, all the expected memes and mocked up posters advertising the fight. And uh, the, um, the journalist Nick Pete 
who's a fight sports journalist and a broadcaster, he said that uh, Dana White must be licking his lips at the possibility of putting this fight on. He said he thought there was a decent chance it could actually go ahead, mostly because of Musk and his personality and his eccentric character. His career kind of suggests he's not somebody who's willingly steps down. He ever said, though, uh, Zuckerberg will win. He's a lot smaller, but, uh, you know, he's got no training whatsoever. And Zuckerberg's been training for, I think, a year and a half in this jujitsu, and it should be pretty... I, I would, I'd actually fly to Vegas for that. How about that? You know, I would. So we'll see. We'll see what, what's going on. There's a lot going on with uh, Elon Musk right now. Of course, his, uh, um, his Starlink, which is definitely involved in this rescue mission, for, which now results in a, I think you'd have to call it a, instead of a rescue mission, it has become a reconnaissance. I don't know what you call it at this point, but they're announcing that there is a debris field uh, adjacent to the Titanic wreck and that uh, there'll be a public statement at three o'clock from the Coast Guard. So we'll see. I mean, you know, I, I, I never give up hope. My husband had a dream last night that they were rescued, so I was kind of even feeling more hopeful, but uh, it, it definitely uh, is not looking like that's going to be the end of this story. So it'll be, it'll be interesting. I promise this, I will read the Supreme Court opinions, all of which have come down today and actually earlier this week. I have not had an opportunity to pour through them. I know that doesn't sound exciting and fun to you, but for me, it's as good as it gets. So I'll be reading those and I'll be able to talk about them tomorrow. Of course, tomorrow we honor our military as well as check in with my son, Derek, at TMZ. By the way, he hosted TMZ one day last week. You know, that means uh, Harvey couldn't be there and Harvey's second, his lieutenant, had uh, emergency surgery, so he couldn't be there, and Derek was at the helm. And I have to admit, you know, the kid is good. He really is. He says he talks too much about personal things. I'm glad I'm his mother and not his wife, and he knows I'm off limits. But uh, it is, uh, it is, uh, it's great to see him doing so well in a career that I never imagined I'd see him in. I mean, he's still a practicing attorney. He's the attorney along with uh, Jason for TMZ, but he is, he's very funny. He's very clever and he's very interesting. I had a friend tell me yesterday, I never miss your show on Friday because I enjoy the banter between you and Derek. And I certainly do. What mom doesn't want to have a weekly phone call that she can count on, right? From her kid. Anyway, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Um, I, I, my plan is to be back here tomorrow at noon, if it be his will and he delays his coming. Uh, we'll find out exactly what happened in this uh, next 12, 24 hours, and that's going to uh, tell us the whole story. So I thank you for your time this time until next time. And don't forget, um, whatever's inside of you, that's what counts. That's what's important. So you need to be about yourself. Not that I'm selfish, but 
got to look out for one another as well. Thank you for listening. I'll be back tomorrow. God bless you and God bless the USA. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.